0: I'd like to introduce the moderator of the intellectual property law panel, uh, Professor Amy Adler. Professor Adler is the Emily Kempfen Professor of Law at NYU. She's a specialist in the legal regulation of art, sexuality, and speech. Her scholarship focuses on the intersection of law and culture, and her work draws on an array of fields, primarily from the arts and humanities, to explore these legal questions. Professor Adler graduated from Yale University and Yale Law School and clerked for Judge John M. Walker, Jr. of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. So, um, we have three spectacular panelists, and our first is Stephen Kinsella, whom we have already heard from today once in the questioning. He's a registered patent attorney and general counsel for Applied Optoelectronics Inc. A former partner with Dwayne Morris, he has prosecuted hundreds of patent applications for high-tech clients, including Intel, GE, and others. He is a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, editor of Libertarian Papers, and director of the Center for Study of Innovative Freedom. And he's published numerous articles and books on intellectual property law, international law, and on the application of libertarian principles to legal topics. And just two titles International Investment, Political Risk and Dispute Resolution, A Practitioner's Guide, and Against Intellectual Property. Um, Stefan.
1: All right.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. okay. Um, it's nice to be here. Um, as Amy mentioned, I am a practicing patent attorney. I'm also a libertarian, and I'm the only uh, non law professor, I think, here, although I do teach uh, at Mises Academy some courses. So um, I have a little bit of teaching experience. Um, What I would like to do is, in the 20 minutes allotted to me, um, give an overview of, and I've been practicing for patent law for 18 years. And over this time, I've developed my current views. And so I would like to just basically give the the overview of what, excuse me, I think the libertarian take on patents and copyrights are. So it's important to start with the origins of IP. because there's a lot of uh, uh, ignorance about how patent and copyright law came to be. Basically, the origin is in favoritism and control by the Crown. Uh, uh, there's a, a good study by uh, Eric Johnson. It's a draft paper, and I won't, I won't read the quote, but um, um, and I can, I'm going to post this, these slides later. There's hyperlinks here to a lot of these articles. Uh, so copyright came about when Queen Mary created the Stationers Company in 1557, uh, in order basically to control thought, to control what the printing press uh, was going to be used for. So, it was clearly designed originally for censorship purposes. Uh, when the charter expired, the publishers then asked to, you know, hey we kind of like having this monopoly over what books get to be published. So, they asked uh, Parliament to pass a statute, but Parliament wasn't so disposed to give a monopoly to the publishers, they gave it to the authors instead in the Statute of Anne in 1710. And one reason the authors were happy to excuse me, have this, uh, and also in uh, in other countries of Europe where similar laws were being passed, was in a way freed them from the censorship of the state. Now they had the right to copy their own works. So it wasn't necessarily the same uh, current attitude about I have a copyright in this novel and I can you know sue you if you you copy without my permission. It was more to extract their own works from the control of the state. Now as for patents, uh, the English Parliament enacted the Statute of Monopolies in 1624, one of the first uh, uh, modern uh, patent statutes, and it was a reaction against the practice of monarchs issuing letters patent, uh, which granted monopolies to court favorites in goods or businesses, which had long been enjoyed by the public. Um, and some, some no- notorious examples would include Sir Francis Drake, who was a notorious—he uh, was called a privateer, but he was really a pirate—who um, was given a letter patent in 1587. So this is an example of where patents granted by the state uh, actually did cause piracy, but um, not the kind of piracy we have now, uh, which is just file sharing. Um, so then the statute banned these letters patent, but they, made, they carved out an exception for, uh, for novel inventions. So this is the origin of patent and copyright. Okay, now how did it come to America? Um, actually, the first modern patent copyright in the world was uh, South Carolina, 1691. Um, uh, but anyway, the, the Constitution was ratified in 1789, There's, there is a patent and copyright clause in there, um, and contrary to current wisdom, it was not based in natural law. Tom W. Bell explores this idea in detail in, in, his, uh, in his draft book. Um, basically uh, even Locke didn't believe that uh, patent and copyright were, could be justified by his homesteading theory, or his natural law theory. It was done purely uh, as a utilitarian measure to try to uh, promote uh, innovation and wealth. Now. The important thing to understand here is that studies have not proven this to be the case. Um, In fact, studies are usually not attempted by advocates of IP. Um, Back in the 50s, uh, Fritz Machlup did a study commissioned by Congress, I believe he was sort of a quasi-Austrian economist, and he, he stated there, no economist on the basis of present knowledge could possibly state with certainty the patent system as it now operates confers a net benefit or net loss on society. And I agree with the first part of that. You, you, we can know that it, uh, it confers a net loss because of the uh, Austrian idea of uh, utility and welfare economics. However, he says if we did not have a patent system it would be irresponsible uh, on the basis of our present knowledge to recommend instituting one. Now he was also against abolishing it because the system had, uh, um, it was so entrenched. Um, so this is in the 50s and a lot of studies have been done since then. Okay, but in the meantime what happens is because these clauses are part of the Constitution and America is seen as the bastion of capitalism and private property rights and because these rights started being called property later on as Maclup notes, uh, originally they were called monopoly or privilege but people started using the word property in connection with it for for a purpose, for propaganda purposes. They wanted to substitute a word property instead of the word privilege because it had more favorable connotations okay so now what happens is uh, it becomes part of the fabric of capitalism. So people who are generally in favor of property rights or the Western system just sort of assume that patent and copyright are one legitimate type of, of property right. Uh, especially because they're called intellectual property rights. This is the power of words. Um, uh, now, so what's interesting is nowadays people think of IP as a natural right, right? Despite the fact that it was done for utilitarian purposes or they'll argue for it on empirical grounds even though there's no evidence for it. Okay and even though it really originated in monopoly uh, uh, grants of a uh, p- privilege and control by the, by the crown. So in a way, it's similar to n- the minimum wage. Most economists seem to universally recognize that there's no proof showing that there's any empirical benef- uh, there's any benefit uh, that can be proven from the patent and copyright system, um, uh, just like most economists realize the minimum wage is completely counterproductive, and yet it's hard to kill politically, okay? So So what you have now is pro-property people, libertarians, proprietarians, conservatives, uh, even modern artists, uh, they all now assume IP is part of a property rights system. And after all, the Constitution permits it. uh, But on the other hand, I don't know if that's a a ringing endorsement of patent, because the Constitution was, in my view, a mistake. It was a centralizing power-grabbing coup. uh, And it also condoned or permitted slavery, paper money, uh, inflation, the business cycle, judicial supremacy, taxation, conscription, war, and drug prohibition. Uh, and if it doesn't uh, permit these things, it was, been help us to stop it. In the words of Spooner, it's not worth having. Um, and so Ayn Rand is also a big influence in modern libertarian circles. So Ayn Rand moves here from Russia. She sees the great freedom we have in America compared to Russia, but she's right. We were, by contrast, a relative, a relatively free. Um, and Ayn Rand was influenced by the Constitution. She thought it was a marvelous document. And so you know, it, she, bought, she buys into this idea too that property rights include patent and copyright. In fact, it, it influenced her whole philosophy and where she actually has the uh, completely absurd statement, patents are the heart and core of property rights. Uh, and other, other modern objectivists um, uh, will actually say that all property is intellectual property. Um, I actually think Ayn Rand's view on intellectual property was uh, and her view on anarchy were her two biggest mistakes of her substantive philosophy. Um, and on the other hand, I, I, in, in Murray Rothbard's correspondence, which has not yet been published, uh, there's, a, there's something in there indicating that he, he, he had uh, been told that Ayn Rand originally even supported eminent domain. Um, because it's, in the, it's in the, supported by the Constitution, but then she changed her mind about it later. So it just shows that she was taking the Constitution as sort of a, a template of what we should have. So, so basically you have this assumption even by modern libertarians, but the problem is they are still artificial state monopolies. And what they do is they give the holder of this monopoly the power to go to a state court to use the force of the state against the competitor, say, who is using their own property in a peaceful manner because they don't want them to do it okay so it basically is a redistribution of rights from the owner of a property right to the innovator of a way to use their own property so basically it's just a disguised way of redistributing property rights uh, now the libertarian perspective which i adhere to is that the goal of law and justice is not just tweaking incentives to produce innovation or maximize wealth or some social goal even if you believe that the federal government were competent enough to do this without corruption and screwing everything up worse in the first place, Um, the purpose of property rights is basically to reduce conflict over things that can be conflicted over, which is scarce resources. Uh, This is just so that they can be used peacefully for productive purposes so we can all live in peace and harmony together and have prosperity. So the purpose is this, and if you think about the Misesian idea of praxeology, which studies the structure of human action, this idea is that human action is basically, in a general sense, the use of means scarce resources to accomplish a, a desired goal. Now, if you think about it, um, what role does ideas, do ideas or information play in this? Ideas and information are what we consult to guide our action, right? So the more knowledge I have, then I am aware of a larger universe of possible ends I can pursue, or a larger universe of means I can use to achieve my goals. The reason we have property rights in means is because they are scarce, and I can only use a means to achieve my end if I have the right to use it peacefully without someone fighting with me over it. I don't need property rights in the ideas, I just need to know the ideas. This is why these things are fundamentally different according to the structure of human action. So if you take an example, if I want to make a cake, I have to have certain scarce resources, including my body and standing room to stand on and a a counter and uh, and an oven. I have to have a mixing bowl, I have to have a spoon, I have to have uh, an egg and ingredients. If my neighbor takes these from me, I can't make the cake anymore, right? So I need property rights in this so that I can make the cake. If he has his own mixing bowl and his own spoon, uh, he can make his own cake. We can both use the same recipe at the same time. Millions of people can use the same recipe at the same time. It doesn't make any sense to provide a property right in that recipe.
2: Okay.
1: And if you think about it, all these laws are always about scarce goods. When you have intellectual property advocates uh, say that um, ideas are important, uh, just as important as, a, as, a, as a scarce resources and that we should protect them as well, Well, the truth is, they don't advocate laws that enforce these patent and and, and copyrights with intangible force, right? It always comes down to a dispute over who owns what. So, for example, if I assert my copyright or my patent against you and I take you to court, I'm asking the court to make a decision about who owns the perpetrator's body or his money in his bank, right? If I want $10,000 damages, I am seeking title to his money. Okay? So it always comes down to a dispute about who owns things, but according to Lockean property rights, we know who owns the money, you know, the guy who owns it owns the money, he already owned it, and unless he makes a contract or commits a tort, he doesn't give up title to that money. So this is an example of why IP laws uh, just amount to, uh, uh, they're just disguised transfers of wealth and property. Okay? Uh, so basically the problem with intellectual property, it is that a, way, it's a way of undermining property rights. It undercuts the Lockean homesteading rule. Uh, so this is the reason why proprietarians, or at least some of us libertarians, are anti-intellectual property for the same reason that we're against taxation and redistribution because these are all invasions of property rights. Okay. Now, uh, another way, helpful way to think about this is to consider what the free market does. We live in a world of scarcity. Right? It's maybe not easy to to live and survive and to create things so we can uh, get food and housing and clothing and other material goods we need. But the free market serves to unleash human energy and to allow us to cooperate with the division of labor, uh, et cetera, to produce abundance in the the face of scarcity, right? So we're dealt with a world of limited things, and yet the free market is always trying to uh, create more goods, right? In a way, it's trying to fight scarcity. But luckily, the body of human knowledge is already non-scarce. It's already infinitely reproducible. It grows with every generation, which is one reason we have more productivity uh, and progress in society, because the body of human knowledge grows, is added to, and is transmitted to the next generation. People can dip into it, learn from it, use these ideas as recipes to achieve their ends, or to realize more ends that can be created. This is why it's so important to learn and to emulate, in the free market is built upon the idea of emulation, right? This is what competition is. You see uh, a competitor doing something that the c- customers like, and you start doing what he's doing, or you do it better, or you you, you tweak it, or you do half as well and sell it at a cheaper price. This is how the market works. Consumers are benefited when there's competition, when there's emulation, and when there's learning, and we're all enriched by it. So to artificially impose scarcity on knowledge is suicidal because it's trying to artificially hamper one of the two key aspects of successful human action. The free market is trying to overcome scarcity with real goods. Why would we impose scarcity on ideas? And by the way, uh, advocates of IP explicitly admit that the goal of IP is to restrict the flow of information. They explicitly admit this. Um, Now, let me switch to a second topic, a second way to look at one, another problematic aspect of, uh, of intellectual property uh, which touches a little bit more on the theme of this symposium which is about legislation and interpretation. Uh, there's a really fascinating uh, uh, series of uh, sort of debates back in the 1800s. Uh, there was a guy named David Dudley Field who wanted to codify New York's common law, so similar to the, uh, the way that the, the law in the civil law states like Louisiana and America or, uh, or the civil, civil law countries in Europe um, codify their law into a legislated code, which is the sole or supreme source of law. So he wanted to do this, and James Carter was commissioned by the New York Bar to write, um, a defend, uh, to write a critique of this. And Carter was a strong advocate of the common law, and the common law, remember, is the decentralized way of making law. You have judges right, who hear disputes and they make rules, and this way the common law grows. So, by the way, did the Roman law, which was a largely a decentralized legal system as well. So uh, even though the, co- the civil law this is a legal matter, the civil law like in Louisiana, France um, really is, is, is the descendant of the Roman law in terms of its content. It's really uh, uh, an embodiment of legislative supremacy, legal, uh, 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 sorry, legal, legal positivism, because it's basically the legislature saying we're the sole source of law and this code is the, is the, is the supreme source of law. Whereas the Roman law and the common law were kind of like cousin and systems are both decentralized systems of law. So they actually have more in common with each other than the civil law and the Roman law do uh, in many ways. Okay, so uh, there's a beautiful quote, Uh, I'll try not to read the whole thing, but it's a great quote by Carter because he's so passionate. So he says, and it's it's a good summary of the difference between legislation and common law. And the reason I'm going into this is because patent and copyright are purely legislated creations. You could not have patent and copyright without there being a patent statute or a copyright statute. They could never arise in a court system any more than the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Income Tax Code could. It would be just dicta, right? So, uh, so the problem I'm trying to establish here is show why legislation is not only not the best way of making law, it's not a legitimate way of making law at all. This is even if you're not an anarchist as I am, uh, but even if you're just a an anarchist libertarian, uh, you, you still shouldn't want uh, there to be um, uh, Uh, legislation as as a way of making law at all. The only legislation I would support would be legislation shutting down the federal government. Um, So, at present when any doubt arises in any particular case as to what the true rule of the unwritten law is, and by that he means common law, it is at once assumed that the rule most in accordance with justice and sound policy is the one which must be declared to be law. The search is for that rule. So you see what he's saying is that at least in a common law system, there's a chance you can have a just rule because the participants are trying to find justice. They're trying to award the property to the person with the best claim to it. They're trying to uh, uh, give a restitutionary award to the wrong party. They're trying to do justice. They might make mistakes, but at least there's a possibility because that's what it's about, right? But when the law is conceded to be written down in a statute and the only question is what the statute, uh, the only question is what the statute means, a contention unspeakably inferior is substituted. The dispute is about words. The question of what is right or wrong, just or unjust, is irrelevant and out of place. The only question is what has been written. And I love this last sentence. What a wretched exchange for the manly encounter upon the elevated plane of principle. <laughs> now, uh, let me see how much time I have. I've got a couple minutes. So I'll go through um, some of the, uh, three? I'll go through some of the pernicious effects of legislation as a means of making law. And some of the, uh, the best studies that have been done on this have been by Bruno Leone and Giovanni Sartori, two uh, brilliant Italian legal theorists, uh, both deceased. Uh, Leone was murdered by a client. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so what Leone pointed out was one pernicious aspect of legislation is that it reduces legal certainty in a given society. And the reason is because, the, you know, it's, it's sort of like that bumper sticker, no man's property is safe when the Congress is in session, right? Because the Congress can change the law by decree the next day at any time. In fact, we see this right now with, say, banks and mortgages because, you know, they don't know if Congress is going to all of a sudden come in and, and pr- prohibit foreclosures of mortgages, ru- ruining the certainty or the ability to count on the property right of the mortgage, so now you're not going to loan property. You know, it, it, this is just a current modern example. But the point is, Legislation, if that takes over as the key source of, uh, the key way of making law, then you have more uncertainty in society. And many studies have been done that show tons of pernicious effects of uncertainty. It uh, raises time preference, causes crime, um, causes parties to uh, resort to inefficient practices to get around the uncertainty, etc. cetera. Um, I'll skip that here. Okay now and one other the thing is the more law and so you have the situation where today even libertarians, everyone nowadays thinks of law as the law is what's on the law books you'll hear this all the time what's on the law books right so uh, they think of law as being made by the government, so that's a legal positivistic mentality so it kind of cuts the connection between law and justice. It's just whatever the, the government says and well of course this is going to uh, uh, lead to special interest warfare where people try to get their, their kind of statute passed to protect their interests. It's going to um, uh, make everyone a lawbreaker. There are so many laws because you'll have a proliferation of laws like we have now. Uh, We're all lawbreakers, all of us. We're all criminals. So that gives the government the power to pick and choose and to use its discretion to decide who's going to persecute next. And it also leads to the lack of respect for the law, because you don't think of the law as being a fair set of rules anymore. You think of it as just whatever um, was dictated by, um, uh, by the government, by the state. And uh, I will stop there. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Um, Our next speaker is Professor Kristen Ozinka. Am I getting that right? Um, She's an associate professor at the University of Richmond School of Law, where she teaches intellectual property, um, including patent law, trademark, and unfair competition law, and international intellectual property law she has a degree in biomedical engineering from the university of iowa a masters in electrical engineering from southern illinois and a jd from university of illinois college of law where she graduated magna cum laude in order of the coif she has um, worked prior to entering academia at the intellectual property law firm of finnegan henderson in washington dc and she clerked for Judge Lynn on the Federal Circuit.
3: Okay. Thank you. Um, and, and I want to first thank the, the journal. Um, as, a, as a patent scholar, I never get invited to come and play with language scholars, and this is really a treat for me. Um, and, and I don't usually sit by people like Steph and say, are just bad and evil. So that's also a treat. Um, so this is, this, is, this is just exciting all around for me. But what I want to talk about is um, how do we interpret the words of patents? Um, because I think that there's, there's a, a lot of um, chatter about it in the patent world and I think what we are desperately missing out on is, is the, the work of the, the language folks, the linguistics folks, um, that would really assist us as patent people in understanding. And so what I um, have started doing in my career for the last um, five years or so is stealing what they do and trying to put it into patent law um, and with, with varying levels of success. So I'm gonna to talk to you about that today. Um, so you may or may not have gotten from Stefan's <laughs> comments about patents. Patents are basically a monopoly. Um, and the, the thing about the patent monopoly um, is that it's defined by words. Uh, there's, there's no fence that you can put around an idea. The only way that you can define your idea um, and and carve it off from the rest of the world is is to use words. Um, And and There's some unfortunate historical issues with with the words that are used for patents. Um, Early on in patent times, uh, we have what was called central claiming. So basically you read a story and what the judge would do is he would read it and he'd say, wow, okay, there's your invention, I got it, let's go uh... that that made it hard though, it made it hard for the judge to read a big long description of what was going on and say oh that's what's good about yours and so we moved from a system of central claiming to peripheral claiming where the patentee had to list out exactly this is my territory um, and unfortunately when the patent system changed to be that way it's one sentence you have one sentence that says I claim a chair that has four legs and a seat and a back and a cushion and a whatever period um, and, and they're rather unwieldy, and there's no really good reason for that, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it's just to get you into the, the story. So, so we have these, these claims that come at the end of the patents. The claims define the territory of the exclusion. Um, the claims are very hard to read, and not simply because they're one sentence. Um, and so the problem is the interpretation of these claims. And we have some law not surprisingly, um, of how we're supposed to do it. Uh, we are supposed to when we interpret patent claims, uh, give the words their ordinary and customary meaning, which sounds an awful lot like plain meaning, the ordinary and customary meaning that would be given to the words by a person having ordinary skill in the art. And just because I like to say it, that's the fauceta, person having ordinary skill in the art, focita. Um And so you give the ordinary and customary meaning as would be given by a FOCITA consistent with the specification. So we have plain meaning. We have this ordinary and customary meaning, but we also have some context. We have the context both of the ordinary and customary meaning is from the perspective of the facita, and we also have the context that the the surrounding um, writings. Right there's a there's the front part of the patent, which isn't the claims, but it's the story part. You're supposed to read the claims in light of that. So we have written context. We have um, constituent context, uh, and that's what we're supposed to do. And that's how we interpret patent claims, and this is how we determine what the monopoly is, and this is how we determine who's infringing. And all of this is really great, but it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> basically, there's a ton of uncertainty, and so the, the the tools we've been using don't seem to be working. So just some some ideas about that. Um, the the concern with the boundaries is if you're on this side of it, you're not infringing, and if you're on this side of it, you are, and you're liable, and that's not good. Or from a more positive point of view, if you're the, the competitor and the, the patents over here, you want to know where this territory is so you can open a business in the right place. Um, so there's, there's a, a number of different constituents that need to decide where these lines are between them. So we need to know where these boundaries are because the boundaries are not a fence. They're, they're a set of words. They're very hard to deal with. Um, and then the problems range from things like this. The reversal rates between the district court and the court of appeals for the federal circuit have been measured about 33 to 40 percent What they say the boundary is that the district court gets flipped about a third of the time when it comes up to the federal circuit. That's not really good, right? Uh, That's, like, really bad, Uh, (laughs) just just to say. Um, We have a number of different constituents. Um, When these claims are drafted, they're drafted by a patent attorney who is an engineer who went to law school and forgot everything they knew about science. They're (laughs) drafted based on information given to them by the inventor who knows nothing about law but knows an awful lot about the science. They're read by judges that don't know anything. Um, And so when these are drafted, they're being drafted and read and written by all different sorts of parties that aren't coming to it with that same shared background that that you heard about this morning. So I want to talk more about that. But that's another problem. And then we don't know what we're doing. So the best place to look when you don't know how to define a word is naturally the dictionary. Right? Isn't that the first place you all go when you don't know how to define a word? Yeah, um, there's un- a very unfortunate Federal Circuit case, an en banc case, to talk about how to construe these patent claims from 2005. And it says, the best use of a dictionary is when you already know what the word means. Seriously? Um, and so, so um, we don't know what we're doing. All of these are examples to show you that in patent law, we don't know how to interpret these claims. And, and just another little story about dictionaries because it, it amuses me to no end. Um, The Federal Circuit had to come up with the meaning of the word hydrosol. Hydrosol is a very scary word, right? Are you guys scientists out there? Go, good. Because when I do this with patent people, they're like, oh, yeah.
2: Um, (laughs)
3: Hydrosol is a scary word for me because I'm an electrical engineer. Um, And so the Federal Circuit gets it. It's in a claim. They don't know what it means. So they go to a dictionary. It's like Merriam-Webster's collegiate, whatever. Um, And it says, hydrosol is a sol um, with water. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a sol with water. Ah, it's got it. Um, and so then they like, well, we don't know what a sol is. And I'm like, good, I don't either. Um, so they look up sol, and sol simply means salt, dissolved. So now we have a salt dissolved in water. And you're like, wow, that's great. They found that in the same dictionary. And you think we're good to go now, right? Think we're ready to move on and apply some law because we have salt dissolved in water. Well, the Federal Circuit decides they don't know what dissolved means. Okay? But they don't look in the Merriam Webster dictionary that they'd used for the last two definitions. They pull an entirely different dictionary off the shelf to look for the word dissolved. Anybody see a problem with this, right? This is a results-driven thing. They wanted it to come out a certain way, and the word, the way it dissolved was defined in the Merriam-Webster that they'd used for the last two definitions. didn't work for them, so they pulled it. Anyway, claim construction is a big, hairy mess at the Federal Circuit, at the lower courts, because they don't know what's going on. Um, And so this is where I came into being interested about this, um, because I want to fix this or at least tell them how they should fix it or just have something to write about. Um, and so, I'm like, well, why, why are we having a hard time with this? These are just words, right? We're, we should know how to do this. Uh, in fact, there, there have been people who have done studies. Um, what are these words that are causing problems at the Federal Circuit? Uh, the Federal Circuit has more than, on more than one occasion, defined the word A. Okay. They have defined the word the, um, they have defined the word about. Um, and you're like, well, that's stuff we understand in everyday language, why is this so hard? And so, so those ideas came together in my head and I'm like, everyday language, <laughs> understanding, there's people out there that know how to do this. And that's where I started poking into some of the, the, the language scholarship, the linguistic scholarship, and I will just say right now, I'm not a linguist. Because I'm pretty sure that when I was in school and high school, I didn't know what a linguist was. So I didn't go to college to become one. And I'm really regretting that decision now. Because um, I think it suits my personality a little better than engineering ever did. Okay, so so what am I doing? What am I taking from uh, what, what they're doing, what Scott and Larry and Peter are doing, and bringing into mine? And I, I do want to say, I saw the panel for this morning, and I'm like, wow, I've cited all of you like 800 times, and that's really exciting to me. So just... Um, just made me happy to see you all here. Um, okay, so when I first started, I was like, okay, what do we do? Let's just pick out some, cherry pick some ideas about uh, linguistics and understanding words and see what we can do with patent law, and, and one of the first things that bothered me instantly was the use of the dictionary and, and stuff like that. And um, I didn't know really where to go with it, so I pulled out some ideas, you know, we should probably use a dictionary to look up words we don't know rather than words we do. Um, we should probably pay attention to what we did before. Okay? In patent law, there's no such thing as stare decisis. Well, there's stare decisis in patent law, but not with respect to patent claims. So if they define the word A in patent number one, the word A in patent number two doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. Or in patent number three or in patent number five. I'm like, well, that's not okay. I'm like, we need to really have some sort of, not necessarily stare decisis, but a general idea of how these words are being defined over and over again um, so we don't have to decide what A means all the time was another thing. Uh, A a third thing that I thought about um, in the first paper I wrote was there's this phoceta, this person having ordinary skill in the art, very fact-based guy, right? (laughs) Um, Or girl, fact-based guy or girl. The Federal Circuit claims to bring the Focita into the picture, but we don't know who this person is. They never really, they say it has to be determined, on the basis of who the Focita is, and then they never say anything more about it. And there's two problems with that. First, how do we know what he thinks if we don't know who he is? And second, um, shouldn't we have some deference since it's such a fact-based thing? Well, claim construction is reviewed de novo at the Federal Circuit. So any determinations that are fact-based made on who this Focita is and what he knows, disappear when it gets to the federal circuit so that that was my early um paper and you know i I got really interested in it and then i didn't know what to do with it so then i moved on um, and and my second paper along this this lines um has to do with cooperative um patent prosecution and this this um the idea of this is that um as as people have said this morning when you have a, a conversation when you're trying the speaker is speaking intending that the hearer hears him and understands and gets the point that he's coming from and the the listener is supposed to be listening and saying, oh, somebody is speaking to me and I should try to understand it. Uh, and that's not how patents are created, which is unfortunate. Um, basically, the way patents are worked is it's, it's not unsimilar to um, how statutes are drafted, right? The, the legislators sit around, they make deals and backroom bargains and what have you and something comes out the door. And that's, that's probably cynical but that's how it happens. But with respect to patent drafting um, and patent granting, what it is is that there's a bunch of little conversations that take place and everybody involved in them has a different interest and none of them has cooperation in mind. So we have the inventor talking to the attorney. That's your first little conversation. And the inventor is saying, I have this really cool stuff. Get me protection. And the patent attorney is saying, that's not really not that cool, but I'm going to make him some stuff to go with it. Um, so you have this conversation where they're trying to, he's coming in and saying, I got good stuff. And this guy's saying, no, you don't really, but let me fake it. So that's your first conversation. That's not really cooperative. Okay, That's, that's kind of not good. Okay, but more important than that, that conversation is, is minor compared to the next one. The next one is the attorney speaking on behalf of the patentee to the patent office, okay? And so we have this agency, and we can talk about all sorts of agency problems, too, and, and how we defer to them, but that's, we'll save that for later. Um, you have the patent attorney, and what he wants is for the patent office to know as little as humanly possible. Because the littler they know, the bigger the patent's going to end up being. Okay? So he says, he comes in the door, patent attorney comes in the door and says, I want you to just look at this little tiny piece and say it's all good to go. Okay? So not very cooperative. He's like hiding stuff, kind of. The uh, The patent office, on the other hand, what their goal is, is speed. Okay? And so the patent office says, hey, looks good to me. And doesn't take the time to clarify. Whereas, if we were having a conversation, presumably the patent attorney would come in and say, "Hey, um, I want to have a conversation with you, and here's what I want to tell you, and not hide." And the patent offices would say, "Gosh, that's great. Oh, and I didn't understand that. Could you explain it a little better?" And that would be a normal cooperative conversation. Here, instead, we're coming in and saying, "I have something to hide." And the other guy says, "I don't care as long as I get through it fast." Um, and then the last part of the conversation is very, very similar to. Um, statutes is the idea that the statute is speaking or the patent is speaking and saying this is my territory and very similar to a a statute there's no ability to question it Um, it wasn't based necessarily on a cooperative conversation itself and so we end up with this very non-cooperative process all the way through that looks like a conversation but we can't use all the same tools that we do in normal conversation to understand it which is kind of what I was hoping at the time, is oh I could say, oh, it's like a conversation, so let's apply conversation theory to the patent, and well, it, it doesn't work. Um, and so that was that. Um, so am I still good? No, you're still good. Okay, good, because then there's one more paper, and that's the one I'm working on now. Um, but just to tell you where all of these are coming from, because basically I see this problem is patent claim construction is a big, huge language pile. And I just keep poking at it from different directions trying to find out which one works and I haven't found one yet. Um, but the last one is the idea of um, the boundaries and the, the um, kind of a definitional sort of thing. Um, and this one isn't as easy to talk about because I'm not quite done with it, but that's okay. Uh, the, the deal here is that in patent law we say here's your boundary and we realize that's not very good. It doesn't work. There's too many exceptions. There's too many things that we can't think about when we define it. All all of the things that that the what's the word? I'm I'm in my southern mode, gentlemen. Y'all are gentlemen. That'll work. (laughs) Um, That the gentleman we're talking about this morning is that you know, if you say this and they take one step over the line, are they in? Are they out? That's the sort of the the concern. Um, And so what we do in patent laws, we have something called the doctrine of equivalence, which basically says if the line is here, we know you can't write words that exactly define this line. So we're going to give you some fuzzy area to the outside of the line to make up for the fact that you can't draft a perfect claim. And so we have this thing called Doctrine of Equivalence and this is this really hideous doctrine um, that doesn't work well, that the Federal Circuit has tried to kill, the Supreme Court says no, no, you can't kill it, but it's kind of killed anyway and there's been a lot of law trying to figure out exactly what means, um, what still exists of the Doctrine of Equivalence. Where is this little fuzzy boundary? And, And my thought is basically this, is that we don't need the Doctrine of Equivalence. We need to acknowledge that language works that way anyway. We don't need a doctrine to say, hey people understand that words are fuzzy we need to say hey words are fuzzy so we don't need a patent or we don't need a doctrine to explain it and so the, the ideas I'm exploring are kind of this idea of definitional versus prototype definitions and, and creating a taxonomy that isn't rigid and um, I'm going to leave it there. Great. Okay. Great. Terrific. <laughs>
0: Our last panelist is Professor Barton Beebe, who has been on the faculty of NYU as a professor of law since the fall of 2009. And his scholarship focuses on the doctrinal, empirical, and cultural analysis of intellectual property law. And I have to editorialize for a minute because I've read a lot of his scholarship, and it's so fascinating, and I commend it to you. Um, prior to joining our faculty, Professor Beebe taught at Uh, Cardozo law school where he won the award for best professor in 2007 he visited at Stanford he has served as a special master in Louis Vuitton Melletier versus Duny and Bork in the Southern District Um, he graduated from Yale Law School he has a PhD in English literature from Princeton and he has a B.A. from the University of Chicago, Phi Beta Kappa, and clerked for Judge Denise Coate in the Southern District.
2: Okay, uh, thank you very much. I realize I'm the last speaker between you and an absolutely beautiful afternoon in New York, so um, <laughs> I will uh, try to be brief, uh, as brief as possible. First, a, a word or two um, about this uh, lovely talk about intellectual property uh, as monopoly, and so. Um, I'm very interested to hear after, I'll try to leave some time about the incentives theory and the idea that the reason that intellectual property restricts the flow of speech in the short term is to encourage the greater flow of speech in the long term, and just the more general uh, public goods problem uh, that intellectual property seeks to address. I'm sympathetic uh, in my heart to your ideas, and I just, I'm looking for good responses. Um, as far as IP being a creature of uh, statute entirely, I think you know, there's, there are good histories of common law copyright and misappropriation out of the common law courts that uh, might be addressed as, as well. Though, again, I'm, my heart is, is more or less with you. Um, So, let me talk uh, primarily about trademark law. We've heard about uh, patent law, uh, which is usually what happens at these kinds of uh, panels, but uh, I actually think trademark law is the most important form of intellectual property and uh, the others can uh, sort of follow along. Um, And what I will talk about is the Focita in trademark law. Uh, This is the person having ordinary skill in the art of consumption of the relative goods and services. Uh, The reason I want to talk about this FOCITA in trademark law is that in trademark law the consumer is the measure of all things and is the source of all meaning in trademark law. Trademarks exist only to the extent that consumers perceive them as designations of source. Infringement occurs only to the extent that consumers perceive one trademark as referring to the source of another. We say in trademark law, if a tree falls in the forest and no consumer is there to hear it, the tree makes no sound, all right, it's that simple. Um, nearly every doctrinal issue in trademark law, functionality is the major exception, turns on the question of the meaning that, is an, that an appreciable majority of the relevant consumer population attributes to some sign, some word, some whatever. If we use dictionaries, it is to figure out what other people think or what the majority of people think. If we use survey evidence, and we do increasingly now use survey evidence, it is to do the same. Um, consider the example of Judge Frank, who in 1948 roamed the halls of his courthouse, conducting a rough survey related to the case before him. The issue in the case was whether the defendant's 17 brand girdles would be perceived as coming from the same source as the plaintiff's 17 brand magazine. In his dissent, Judge Frank writes the following, and it's a long paragraph, but I think it's worth reading. Like the trial judges, our surmise must here rest on judicial notice, as neither the trial judge nor any member of this court is or resembles a teenage girl or the mother or sister of such a girl, Our judicial notice apparatus will not work uh, well unless we feed it with information directly obtained from teenagers, which he puts in quotes, or from their their female relatives accustomed to shop for them. Competently to inform ourselves, we should have a staff of investigators like those supplied to administrative agencies. As we have no such staff, I have questioned some adolescent girls and their mothers and sisters, (laughs) persons I have chosen at random. I have been told uniformly by my questionees that no one could reasonably be, reasonably believe that any relation existed between plaintiff's magazine and defendant's girdles, all right? So the problem with trademark laws, uh, <laughs> use of the Focita-like figure to establish meaning, is that Well, judges have to roam courthouse hallways or now rely on survey uh, survey experts of um, dubious honor, some of them, uh, to figure out what the person having ordinary skill in the art of the consumption of the relevant goods actually thinks uh, about the trademarks at issue. And one important factor in this uh, analysis is the sophistication of the relevant consumer population. So in order to determine meaning uh, in trademark law, we cannot just think of the general consumer in the American population, we have to focus in on the consumer population that is concerned with consuming the goods at issue. Um, a further problem is that the sophistication of the average fosita in trademark law varies according to the politics or the policy preferences of the trademark commentator. Uh, and so what I'll talk about in the time remaining is um, this variance, not just in, litiga- in, in litigants' views of the FOSIDA, but also in policymakers' views of this giver of meaning, this, this consumer, Uh, who's the lens through which we see everything in trademark law. Um, What I'll talk about first is consumer sophistication in search. I think this is the the simple idea, consumer sophistication, when consumers look at things on shelves, Uh, consumer sophistication when it comes to how consumers interpret signs in the marketplace. Uh, Then I'll talk about something a bit different, which uh, my understanding is hasn't really come up too much uh, today, and that is uh, a different sort of import that comes with words or signs, and that is persuasion. Uh, So, what I'll talk about is consumer sophistication with respect to persuasion attempts directed at them. Um, Because in trademark law, when we talk about meaning, we don't simply mean to refer to the semantic content of some sign. We're not talking about mathematical formulas. We also mean to refer to the persuasive import of the sign. In fact, when we talk about meaning nowadays, we're probably talking more about rhetoric, about persuasion than we are about, I don't know, semantic content, whatever that is. So First, uh, a word or two about search sophistication, about the sophistication of the people upon whom we rely as sources of meaning in trademark law. It is an irony in trademark law that the plaintiff is often placed in the strange position of arguing that its consumers are, well, fools, uh, easily confused, uh, and that the goods that the plaintiff is selling to these people are rather commonplace and not really worthy of much analysis or attention in the uh, marketplace. Meanwhile, the defendant argues to the court that the plaintiff's consumers are actually quite sophisticated people. Uh, after all, look at, the, look at the plaintiff's products that they're buying, and that the plaintiff's products are quite exceptional. This is because, in trademark law, the scope of protection accorded to a trademark is inversely related to the degree of consumer sophistication that is attributed to the relevant consumer population. Um, more consumer sophistication results in a lesser scope of protection less sophistication in a greater scope of protection. Let me give you some examples that make this very clear. These are extreme examples, but they they make the case clear. Uh, First Circuit case involving the mark Astra. Two companies used exactly the same trademark, A-S-T-R-A, on medical equipment. And the court wrote that the decision to buy a machine worth thousands of dollars is obviously not done on an impulse and involves a careful consideration of the reliability and dependability of the manufacturer and seller of the product, therefore no confusion. Two companies can use exactly the same mark on more or less the same goods, but because we're dealing with highly sophisticated consumers, no problem. This is my even favorite. My trademark students have already heard about this. The recent Canadian case that dealt with two marks, both for the same services, and both marks were essentially the letter A. Just the letter A. One was stylized in one way. The, otherwise it's, the other mark was stylized in a slightly different way. Court wrote, all of the plaintiff's experts acknowledged in cross-examination that the relevant consumers would not be confused into purchasing the wrong nuclear reactor <laughs> by, the sim- by the similarity of the marks. Um, elsewhere in the opinion, um, and I hope these aren't just cheap jokes, this is, the, you know, this is our source of meaning in trademark law, Is it really relies on not on the judge, uh, not even really on the jury, but on this population of people out there, the, the, the reader's response. In this case, the court declined to apply the, quote, moron in a hurry test. That's a test we refer to in, in uh, trademark law. And this is lovely. This Canadian court wrote, in this industry, the fact that Homer Simpson may be confused is in- insufficient to find confusion, all right? So that's one side. At the one extreme, we, we, we interpret meaning through the lens, through the eyes of extremely sophisticated consumers who are not easily confused by anything um, and who don't even need to consult, or would need to consult the dictionary because they know every word uh, in the language. Uh, On the other extreme, uh, we have a case like uh, the Northern District of California uh, dealing with uh, wine consumers and it found as a matter of apparently judicial notice that American wine consumers are highly unsophisticated, at least outside the borders of uh, San Francisco Bay with respect to wine. Uh, Then we have out of the Southern District of New York, a lovely case in which the court observed sort of along, you know, in passing, even if some of the prospective purchasers of the champagne are from low-income groups, and are therefore less sophisticated shoppers than wealthier purchasers, and the court continued uh, therefore attributing. This uh, later court took issue with this and said actually poor people, they, you know, they, they might be more sophisticated because they can't just throw their money around in anything they want, like Dom Perignon Champagne, which was at issue in this case. So, um, so there is, uh, there is this, this spectrum, and there's a limit to this spectrum, uh, which I think, again, you know, it's interesting how courts try to come to terms with the limits of human comprehension in, in, in trying to attribute meaning to objects in the marketplace. Courts will say in these lovely phrases, you know, um, you know defendant, a plaintiff has walked, has come before us with evidence of maybe 5% confusion. Uh, they've shown some people are confused, anecdotal evidence, but quote, befuddlement is part of the human condition, unquote. <laughs> we, another court. Some people are always confused, you know? <laughs> look, you know, um, so we won't find uh, confusion in this case. Uh, instead, in our, in our hermeneutics, or whatever you want to call it, in our interpretation, we will look for the average con- consumer. Um, so, so far, so good. I think you get the, imp- the idea of this spectrum of sophistication in the relevant <laughs> consumer population when we are litigating a case. Now let me talk about trademark commentary. So uh, trademark uh, professors are notorious for not really being at one with the trademark bar because we tend to be hostile to trademark protection. Uh, and one thing that we often complain about is the level of sophistication that is typically attributed to the FOSIDA in trademark law. And we say that you know, things like courts seem to assume that, that uh, consumers are, quote, presumptive idiots, unquote, or Pavlovian fools is another phrase and we tend to argue that consumers are actually much more sophisticated, we do this in order to support the argument that the scope of protection given to trademarks should narrow significantly. Uh, meanwhile, apologists for trademark protection, just as uh, uh, plaintiffs would in trademark cases, tend to argue that, you know, in general, that consumers are in a hurry, they've got other things to think about, they're not going to attribute that much uh, care to their purchasing decisions. This is to support the expansion of scope in trademark law. Um, Now let me complicate things a bit and turn to the issue of persuasion and persuasion sophistication and propose to you that we can say there is also a spectrum of persuasion sophistication among a relevant consumer population and that this spectrum has important implications for trademark law and ultimately for how we view this this interpreter, this interpretive population, the sophistication of this population and ultimately what our political commitments are with respect to democracy and voting and all of this other stuff. what I will take advantage of is the concept of persuasion sophistication. This is based on various marketing literature, and the, the uh, idea here, I think, at, at, at one level, is very straightforward. The idea is that consumers employ persuasion heuristics or schema that enable them to cope with marketplace persuasion. Uh, so you see the hard sell on TV, and you see through it, you, you know what the beer companies are up to with the way they advertise, you think it's ridiculous, and it has no effect on you. That's sort of, you know. Um, We see references to persuasion sophistication in the case law, but this is typically from cases in the 1950s and 1960s when judges would actually volunteer that they were hostile to trademark protection, now judges are much less uh, likely to do so. What we see much more often is references to persuasion sophistication in the trademark commentary. Here, trademark restrictionists, uh, like most trademark uh, professors in the academy, rail against trademark protection because they say it facilitates marketplace persuasion, which is bad. Uh, One of the first great professors to do this was Ralph Brown, um, the late dean of sort of the restrictionists, who uh, listed consumers' sales resistance, his phrase, a compound of realism, skepticism, and apathy, uh, unquote, as one possible force that could counter advertising propaganda. That was his term, propaganda. But he set little store in sales resistance and suggested that consumers were essentially defenseless against persuasion attempts. On this basis, Brown argued that we should restrict the scope of trademark protection. Um, so, uh, Brown said trademarks are deluding people, persuading them to buy things at higher prices than those things should actually be sold. So we should try to restrict the power of trademarks by restricting their scope of protection. So that's the restrictionist view with respect to persuasion sophistication. Now what about the apologist view? Uh, we can refer to Landis and Posner who, as is their, their way, reject uh, this whole argument. Arguing, the power of brand advertising to bamboozle the public and thereby promote monopoly has been rejected by economists. End of sentence, move on. All right. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, that's a little unfair. They, they deleted this particular phrase and when they republished the article and, and tried to give a little more to it. But anyway, that's about how dismissive they are with respect to this argument. So um, there we have. I've discussed the restrictionist and apologist view with respect to uh, search sophistication and their view with respect to persuasion sophistication. Now there's a bit of a problem uh, where I want to bring these two views together. Um, the um, first consider trademark plaintiffs and apologists. All right, so plaintiffs in trademark cases and also members of the academy who argue in favor of trademark protection. They argue that consumers are generally not sophisticated in search. You may recall that they do so because this supports a broad scope of protection. So consumers are reasonably easily confused when they're looking through the supermarket for various things. At the same time, they argue that consumers are generally sophisticated in persuasion. Uh, No need to worry about trademark protection because it turns out consumers are not bamboozled by the hard sell on television. Uh, they can easily see through uh, this all this advertising, no problems. Um, oh, but when they go into the store and look for the product, then are you know, maybe they do have problems. Meanwhile, trademark defendants and restrictionists sort of argue the inverse. Restrictionists argue that consumers are generally sophisticated in search. Recall that the idea here is to suggest consumers are actually take good care; uh, they're not easily confused. Let's restrict the scope of trademark protection. At the same time, restrictionists argue that consumers are generally not sophisticated in persuasion. Consumers are easily bamboozled by the hard sell. Trademarks create artificial product differentiation. This is bad. People shouldn't buy Louis Vuitton purses because they're wasting their money on, you know, um, on uh, vanities. All of this stuff should be prevented by restricting the scope of trademarks, uh, protection and, trade, and the power of trademarks. My question to you is if, that, if, uh, if it's fair to say that there is some tension in both of these views with respect to a person's search sophistication on the one hand and persuasion sophistication on the other. Uh, Perhaps there is no tension. Perhaps the utterly deluded consumer uh, is, by virtue of his delusion, especially attentive in search. Uh, The idea here is that you care so much about the Gucci purse versus the Louis Vuitton purse or whatever else that you're especially careful when you walk into the store to buy one versus the other. And perhaps the utterly persuasion-resistant consumer cares little about the particular products he buys because he considers them to be all the same. You know, I'll buy any car, they're all the same, it's all these advertisements are ridiculous, four wheels and a steering wheel, I'm fine. So, um, I have two responses and with this I'll conclude to any such attempt to maintain appearances or to preserve some sort of um, Uh, balance between uh, these two sides of our analysis of consumers. Um, The first is empirical. As an empirical matter, search sophistication appears to correlate positively with persuasion sophistication. It is well established that consumers with low search sophistication are also more likely to have a low degree of persuasion sophistication. We can argue about this. I'm less interested in the empirical question than I am in the theoretical uh, question. Um, This is the second objection. To formulate a theory of the consumer, Um, as sovereign in one sense and fool in another, is to formulate a theory not just of the consumer, but also of the citizen, right? Uh, One's theory of trademark law, it must be emphasized, is a species of one's theory of politics. Um, And as a theory of politics, the apologists and restrictionist schools offer us in this schizoid consumer the worst of each of their worlds. So, you know, think about it. The political economic subject is either confused in search or deluded in persuasion. He either chooses on instinct, but mistakenly chooses other than what his instinct instructed him to choose, search confusion, Um, I I know what to get, but I walk into the store and I choose the wrong thing, Um, or he chooses what he intended, but chooses it according to external commands. Uh, You know, I've lost control of my preferences because of all this advertising, but at least when I walk into the store, I know what I'm looking for and can find it. So in either case, the subject may be said to have lost control of the ends of his actions to have lost his sovereignty, and the much larger argument goes to the whole issue of consumer sovereignty and individual sovereignty. This schizoid consumer simply cannot form the basis of a coherent politics, and it follows of a coherent theory uh, of uh, trademark law. Um, so I think I'll, uh, hopefully the, the plain meaning thing is, is sort of woven into that last paragraph, not enough, but in any event, hopefully um, the implications are, are clear.
0: Um, be, so, before we take questions from the audience, I wanted to ask the panelists if any of you would like to respond to each other, if there's anything that you've been provoked by today.
1: Um, I've got a couple. Um, I'm just curious, uh, in, if you deal with the, um, the patent law doctrine that you can be your own lexicographer in your writing, and how do you incorporate that with this dictionary idea? and maybe you can explain what the doctrine is if people don't know it.
3: Yeah, sure. There is a doctrine in patent law that the patentee is entitled to be his own lexicographer. so that if in the patent document he says, every time I say the word green I mean blue, then the word green means blue. Um, More often than not as a matter of reality, I think patentees are hesitant to do that because the minute they offer an explanation they lose their wiggle room Um, whereas if they say, blue is blue and then they get to court and they say and it could be green too I think that I think that although the lexicographer is a big um, part of patent law doctrine I don't think it's used as often um, and so I don't I, I usually just kind of ignore it. I mean I know it's there but I just I would never tell a client to use it and lose their wiggle room gotcha.
2: <laughs> so I'm really curious to know about the the um, Libertarian response to
1: the incentives theory. Okay, so um, I mean, there are different types of libertarians. Some are more empirical or consequentialist. Um, so first of all, I would refer you to, um, I mean, and I'm more of a, 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 an ethical type libertarian. I mean, my primary approach is on whether a law is justified or not. Um, for example, you know, libertarians are opposed to antitrust law primarily because it violates the rights of companies to engage in collusion and price setting, uh, so long as they don't violate other people's property rights. Um, It's only a secondary sort of argument we would come up with, you know, the the empirical aspects of it and why antitrust law doesn't make much sense anyway. Um, uh, So I would refer you, number one, to the superb book by Michele Boldrin and uh, Michael Levine called Against Intellectual Monopoly. They're economists and they're very empirical and they give tons of uh, uh, great uh, case studies. There's a great chapter on pharmaceutical patents which people usually hold up as the, the, you know, the, the single clear example of why we need patent law. And they really do a great job of just eviscerating the entire argument, showing that empirically there is no evidence that patents actually uh, help the, F, the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, now, my perspective would be um, would be this. Uh, first of all, uh, all sellers have cost of exclusion to be able to be successful in the market. Um, and a good example that I, I, I give that I, I read in some other papers is the drive-in movie uh, industry, say in the 50s, um, uh, used to started out with these big loudspeakers and of course one problem with that um, well there's technical problems with it but one problem is the free rider problem so people could park on nearby hills and um, watch and hear the movie for free so the, uh, the movie uh, so they started installing these little speakers which cost a lot of money to do that. So they came up with a creative cost of exclusion. And those other co- all businesses cost cost of, uh, face cost of exclusion. You have to have ushers and you have to have a ticket collector and a lock on your door to keep people from coming in and getting the service for free. So when you engage in an entrepreneurial in- endeavor, you have to use your creativity to try to find a way to make money, yeah. given the realistic cost of exclusion. And if the cost of exclusion is too high, don't engage in it. Now, for a sense of perspective, I would also say, imagine the pharmaceutical industry, even if the, um, the argument is right that um, uh, that giving them a patent would help protect them from competition and help them uh, charge monopoly prices for a while and to um, make greater profits enabling them to have um, uh, be able to do research on uh, drugs that might lose. Um, what we have is we have the federal government which taxes and regulates the hell out of companies and individuals, impoverishing everyone in society. So we're all probably you know 110 times, eight times, uh, we'd be eight ten times richer easily if the government would just reduce itself back to you know 1921 size. Um, so you have this eight, this federal government that taxes companies, imposes pro union legislation, minimum wage laws, uh, uh, the FDA process itself, which drags things out, costs tons of money, and also prevents some drugs from coming to market that could save people's lives. So some people call it the federal death agency. Um, and and taxes these companies, double taxes corporations. And we want the same agency that is just killing these companies uh, to then pass, give them a monopoly privilege to let them make a little bit more money than they otherwise would make, to make up for some of the depredations that same agency has done to them. I mean, it just makes no sense. It would make more sense to tell the government to back off and lower taxes, rather than to give them a a monopoly, uh, which can uh, clutter up the market. And not only that, uh, patents, as Kristen has mentioned, are just a complete mess. uh, they don't, and, and the other party you didn't mention is, the, is just the public or competitors. They also don't know how to read these claims. They don't, they don't have to make of them uh, half the time. So they know that they're stepping in a minefield, but they don't really know how to step around it uh, quite often. Um, so that would be my, my main response to that. Let me make one comment about your trademarks. I also believe trademarks should be abolished for the following reason. Um, the only legitimate function of trademark would be to stop fraud, but you can use fraud law for that. So the problem with trademark law is that, number one, it's the wrong plaintiff right? If you have a consumer who's uh, confused by a fraudulent use of another mark, the consumer should be the plaintiff, not the owner of the trademark. They're not harmed in a cognizable way Um, uh, any more than you're harmed if your customers are quote stolen or your girlfriend is quote stolen. You don't have a right to your customer, you don't have a right to his money, he has a right to it. So that's one problem with trademark law. Number two, uh, the, the wrong plaintiff, which is the owner, is suing quite often Um, When there's not fraud, so for example, when you buy a knockoff Rolex watch for $20 or a fake Louis Vuitton bag on the docks in Turkey for $17, um, you're not defrauded. You know it's a fake, and that's why you want it. You want the cheap fake. So the consumer's not defrauded, and the seller's not defrauding anyone, and yet he can still be sued. So that's another uh, problem with the. trademark law, not to mention the 1995 addition, the anti-dilution uh, provisions, which are added to trademark law, which which permits uh, the owner of the trademark to sue people when there's no consumer confusion whatsoever, um, just because it might tarnish or d- dilute the value of their mark, which means you have a property right in value now, and when property is supposed to be property in the physical integrity of your scarce resources. So trademark law is completely confused, and there's tons of... Uh, horrible examples of trademark law, too. Trade secret law is problematic in that it, uh, injunctions can be used to enforce it, but other than that, trade secret law is not too bad. Um, so so, uh,
0: um, uh, so I'd like to invite the audience to ask questions. We were, our panel was supposed to end now, but the conveners have told me we have a little time for questions afterwards, so yes. <laughs>
4: I understand that theory correctly if the companies use the exact same name and have the pretty close to the same product right uh, but what about the the factor to be considered from a business perspective the company that created that trademark I mean wh- I mean wh- how does that fit into the whole picture I can It und- there may be no confusion of course the consumer is sophisticated and there from an evidentiary standpoint I don't know how they court. caught how does the court come to that conclusion? Are there surveys taken? Are there witnesses testifying in court? But what troubles me about that theory is it, 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 it disregards the entire concept of prop intellectual property. And to the extent that a company goes to the trouble of creating a new trademark, the business is successful. Somebody comes along and copies that, copies everything. And I, there's
2: got to be some
4: explanation here. Thank you.
2: So the. Um... Let's see, the, in the, uh, what I think you, your comment might eventually be directed towards actually is the development of anti-dilution law in the U.S. as well as in Europe and, and other jurisdictions. Um, we say nowadays that even if there is no cons- consumer confusion as to source, still when one company comes along and uses as a junior user someone else, some other company's mark in such a way that doesn't confuse consumers, we still think there's something wrong with it. Uh, so what we say is wrong with it is that it dilutes the distinctiveness of the senior company's mark. Um, more generally, I think we the trademark law has this intuition that there's just some misappropriation taking place. There's just something wrong with this, you know? There's someone uh, reaping where the person has not sown, um, and the old-fashioned theory of consumer confusion won't allow us to reach that conduct, so we've got to figure out a new way to do it. We've come up with this theory of dilution. Uh, which I'm, you know, suspicious of myself. I, I think it's an utterly coherent theory for the the marketplace in which we live currently. And the, the um, um, but that's a, that's another another story. Ah, yes. Given that the term intellectual property doesn't really have a plain meaning um, I, I notice that everybody is still using it, um, do you ever think about using something else and what and why do you use the term intellectual property when it's so rife with problems and definitely does not have a plain meaning? Yeah,
1: anti-intellectual. <laughs> Um, well, I sympathize, of course, um, and uh, <laughs> I'm afraid to legitimize the legitimize it by using the state's own propaganda. But you know, we have to communicate with each other, and uh, uh, but you know, you and I, we've come, we've thought of different uh, alternatives, like pattern privileges or intellectual. Uh, uh, what are some of the others? Uh, intellectual puberty, That's right. That's yours. That's a good one. Um, uh, intellectual monopoly is another. So. I don't know, I don't put too much uh, into the power of words being, you know, talismans that you, I mean, I think you can explain what you're talking about. And, and it's an accepted term, um, but maybe you're right. Maybe some of us uh, opponents should try to use other terms when we can.
5: Hi. Um, I have several comments for Mr. Kinsella, but I think I'll save them for after we're done, because frankly, steam's coming out of my ears. (laughs) And we also have very very little time. (laughs) Yeah, no, I understand. But for Professor Beebe, do the trademark cases deal at all with the defendant's intent? Meaning, I'm thinking of something in the paper recently involving Kentucky Fried Chicken, Mm -hmm. Kennedy Fried Chicken, KFC, Mm -hmm. and the people behind the Kennedy fried chicken openly acknowledged they were trying to confuse people, KFC. So
2: So yes, um, certainly the likelihood of of, uh, consumer confusion test includes as one of its factors the defendant's intent. And as an empirical matter, um, when a court finds that the defendant has um, engaged in bad faith intent to confuse consumers, courts almost invariably rule in favor of the plaintiff. I mean, I, uh, I know the study because I did it and it shows that this, uh, this factor is just sort of dispositive. It's, it's dispositive on the copyright side as well in other contexts, but um, so yes, uh, consu- courts consider intent, but don't forget, there's a little wrinkle to this that defendants try to take advantage of, and that is to say, there's nothing wrong with me taking someone else's good idea. Uh, is it a bad faith intent to compete as, as uh, strongly as I can. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken had a great idea and there's these chicken stands. Uh, can't I open the same chicken stands? So far, so good. Oh, wait, and I want to call them Kennedy Fried Chicken because it sounds a lot like KFC or Kentucky. Then, then we have a problem with bad faith intent. But this typically, the, the defendant will make the argument that all the defendant is trying to do is compete uh, effectively um, with, uh, against the plaintiff. So.
5: Richard.
4: somewhat different ways and it has two parts the first part is to what extent when we try to think of intellectual property as the proper intellectual foundation as some variation on the Lockean theory labor theory of value saying in effect we can't internalize it in a particular good as in the examples that he gave and so what we have to do is to protect the labor by making sure that the outputs by others in effect respect it and secondly how does that theory apply to a tort which we haven't talked about but which Barton sort of hinted at, which is the misappropriation toward under the INS case. So I'd like to hear your views on that.
1: Okay, um, so actually I think that the, the the entire theory of labor has confused both economics and political theory. And uh, so it's led to Marxism and Adam Smith's problems. And in, in the field of law, it's also led to the, uh, uh, to intellectual property and defamation law, things like this, and to the confusion about what property is. and believing in property rights and the value of things instead of in the things themselves. Um, so I think Locke actually made a mistake in his um, in his uh, argument. He, he made an uh, overly metaphorical argument when he said you own yourself, true enough, if you mean by that you have the right to control who hits your body, um, and therefore you own your labor. Now I think that's double counting and a mistake. And then he says, and therefore, because you own your labor, you own things you mix it with, which also doesn't follow because if you spit in the ocean you lose your spit, you don't homestead the ocean, but anyway. Um, I think Locke Locke was right, but he presented the argument wrong. The basic Lockean argument is simply that um, a person who's a self-owner and mixes his labor with thereby being the first user or appropriator of a scarce resource that was previously unowned, thereby demonstrates a better claim to it than anyone else who with with respect to him is a latecomer. So you don't even need to talk about labor ownership. To say that you own your labor um, is just a metaphor that really uh, is double counting because to own your labor would be like saying you own your action. I mean, your action is what you do with your body. The fact that you own your body gives you the right to perform labor, and then you can use that to do um, services or things like that. Uh, it's similar to what Rothbard pointed out when he pointed out uh, why defamation law, for example, uh, or, uh, in, um, is, is illegitimate because it gives you a property right in other people's heads and what they think about you. And also, Rothbard pointed out all, property rights, all rights are property rights. And so for example, when we say a right to free speech, this is another example of double counting. There really is no independent right to free speech. Um, There's only the right to use your property and your body as long as you don't harm anyone else. Uh, To say there's a right to free speech would imply that you have the right to uh, speak on someone else's property, but you don't. So if you have your own property and your body, that's sufficient to give you the ability to speak. It's just one of the things you can do with the freedom and the right to own your body. So to be speaking of all these, uh, rights as if they're independent rights, but they're not, they're just dependent on your basic um, natural rights or your human rights, um, leads to confusion in this area. Um, and uh, of course, the labor theory of value contaminated Adam Smith's thought, which has led to Marxism and, uh, and, um, and uh, lots of mistakes in that regard too. So I, don't, I think labor is just a complete, um, conf- leads to confusion in this area.
2: Uh, well, I guess I was raised in a different uh, tradition. I grew up partially in Berkeley, California, and so the uh, Germans assigned to us in high school were different from the, the Austrians, you know. So um, I will say that I thought that I've always thought we haven't taken Locke far enough uh, in the sense that uh, we don't respect the degree to which labor, uh, through labor, a person uh, invests uh, his or her species being in the products of her labor, and we we allow that we've established this legal tradition that assumes people can just alienate away everything that they've made. And it's the source of a lot of misery in a post-industrial economy like ours. So obviously, I'm at the complete opposite end if we must show our cards. Um, And I've always, yeah, yeah. So. yeah, and I think a lot of intellectual property can be adjusted to take account of the degree to which uh, people should not be forced. Uh, even, you know, we should not allow people to, al- to uh, alienate their, their intellectual labor, the expression of their souls uh, in, in a marketplace. We should, we should allow attribution rights to continue. Instead of intellectual property, we speak of the right of the author in Europe. They take this very seriously there.
1: Um, moral moral rights, rights
2: is what we call it here, and it's, uh, the French have a different term for it.
0: No I'm, I'm getting, no, I'm getting upset on moral rights. Um, <laughs> can we hear um, back there?
2: Professor Kinsella, uh,
3: would you call the so-called intellectual property uh, theft of uh, uh, legitimate property? Because uh, as you explain your paper, Intellectual property violates the homesteading libertarian principle of I mean the the legitimate owner is the one is the one who gets the Physical property in the first place. Would you call it would you call it theft?
1: Yes The reason uh, imagine imagine a neighborhood with a restrictive covenant. This is a situation where um, everyone owns their, their home, but they have signed a restrictive covenant which basically makes everyone else in the neighborhood a partial co-owner of their house with them to the extent that they can say veto through certain procedural means, certain uses, right? So my neighbors can veto my painting my house orange, okay? Because it's, it would be hideous and reduced value in the neighborhood, et cetera. But I, I entered into this agreement, so that's a type of, so a veto right like that is a type of ownership right, a type of co-ownership of my property. Now, this is what trademark—I'm sorry—copyright and uh, patent holders have. They basically have a state-enforced veto over other people's use of their own bodies and/or um, of their property. And th- that, so when the, when the when the right is assigned to a, a copyright or patent holder, they are basically given a partial co-ownership right of my property. And as I said, if as long as you don't commit a tort or enter into an agreement with them to do this, then it hasn't been consented to, and it's a type of theft. Yes.
0: So, unfortunately, I am told we are out of time. I know there are several people with questions, and I invite you to come up and talk to the panel if they're so willing. And thanks,
5: everybody. <laughs>